a Podcast One production. I'm automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. In this episode, I'm about an hour's drive north of Auckland. The countryside here is just beautiful. It's where one of the most diversely successful motorcycle races from the 70s and 80s is now based. Graham Crosby, or Cros as he's often called, is the larrikin biker with loads of funny stories from his time racing in New Zealand, Australia and around the world. Like Steve Parrish, who you may have listened to already in the Rusty's Garage Library, Cros came through an era where they weren't PC... So keep that in perspective. We're just talking about history. He's a ripper bloke who also went on to be a very handy touring car racer. And these days he's doing some cool resto work with bikes too. Cross is one of those people that discovered his passion really early on in life. And he loved it so much, he couldn't imagine doing anything else. So I want you to tell me in your own words, where you grew up in New Zealand, your first memories of motorbikes or anything with an engine and how influential that was on you. Well, it's, it's pretty easy. Marlborough, uh, the wine capital of New Zealand and riding a motocross bike or sitting on the tank of a motocross bike belonging to Ivan Miller, who at that stage was a, um, a, a you know pretty good motocross rider that went on to run in Grand Prix. Um, that's what got me. Absolutely. And just the, just the mere fact of actually sitting on also an AS, I think it's got an AS1, which was a very old, early Yamaha, and I actually got to steer the thing. So that had me hook, line and sinker. How old were you then? About seven. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, grew, I grew into it, but no, I was, I was about seven or eight at that stage. I want to fast forward a little bit in your life here for a moment. Your first proper day of work in the motorcycle game, I think you were about 17. By this stage, you'd moved to Auckland. It's early 1970s. And you had a major cock-up on a client's bike, didn't you? What happened and did it nearly cost you your job? Well, well, actually, to, be, to, to correct you, it wasn't my first job. Mm-hmm. My first job was actually in a used car yard selling uh, sports cars, you know, like, yeah. um, I don't know, old Lotuses and, and um, um, Triumph Heralds and all that sort of stuff and, and an MGA. My job was to detail them and I, I used to use um, Nugget on the... <laughs> on the leather? On the leather, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and I, I, just, I, just, I just can remember this guy coming in and going for a test ride and then walking out. He didn't obviously buy it, but I could just see the back of his trousers. You know, his light-coloured trousers were covered in, in this... Um, so the linen got recoloured, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it did, it did. So that job lasted a very short period of time, of course, and, and um, that actually led me on to working in the motorcycle shop because a customer did come in at the time and wanted to uh, buy a, 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 some, some sort of um, old sports car and... He was the manager of a motorcycle shop and he then gave me the job of um, going over there and working in the workshop in Laurie Summers, which happened to be the New Zealand importers for Kawasaki. And that's where I got that sort of connection, connection. With, mm. with, with Kawasaki. Mm. So my first job, of course, is um, as a <clears throat> trainee mechanic 
was to do the annual, well, the daily, I should say, the daily run across to the um, the parts department in, in Mount Eden, which was probably, I don't know, say 10K, 12K or something like that. And we'd run across and pick up the parts and stick them down your overalls and bring them back. Um, and I... I had a particular liking for a, a Kawasaki A7, which is the old twin twin cylinder mm-hmm. rotary valve thing that was about equivalent to an RD350 in those days. Brilliant motorbike. But I was coming through the um, One Tree Hill Park and uh, I was going a bit quick pretending to be, you know, at the Isle of Man or somewhere like that and <laughs> slipped off it and disappeared under a fir tree. And I remember myself going, oh, no, what have I done? <laughs> and I had to then explain to this workshop manager that, you know, I damaged the bike. And luckily they, they were okay about it. It didn't do too much damage, but that was my first day. So it was a bit of a scary start. You were worried it was actually sap from the trees or something at the time, but you spun him a yarn about the big, the big yellow bus and come out of nowhere or something. Oh, I, for, oh, yeah, I forgot about that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's exactly right because um, there's a lot of trees that overhang and, and it's a very similar scenario to Imola. Okay. If it ever rains at Imola, it's a second or third corner. It, it has the same thing where it becomes very, very slippery. But at the time, I, I, I sort of blamed a, an ARA bus, which is the Auckland Regional Council bus, to come out and, you know, failed to give way. And I took immediate action and unfortunately, <laughs> uh, yeah, saved myself and what was left of the bike. You were cheeky and you still are. Uh, correct me here, you were too young, I think, to get a racing licence. So did you kind of forge your mum's signature, maybe change your date of birth so you could get into the Auckland Motorcycle Club and get your racing licence. And you may have even given yourself a licence upgrade too, did you? Yes. <laughs> well, I had to. I had to. I had to because I was involved in the Motorcycle Club um, fairly early on and and and, and this, this, is all, this all feeds the whole motorcycle theme is that we'd sit in the motorcycle club and drink as much beer as you could possibly do and then watch and read all of the magazines that would come out from uh, the UK, whether it be Motorcycle Mechanics mm. or Motorcycle News or mm. what, whatever it was. And that's where that sort of passion, that desire to um, to be more involved happened. But, of course, in those days you had to, have a, you had to be 18 to have a, a, a competition licence on the road for road racing. So I, I did a bit of forging. But, I mean, I, any, any kid would do, yeah. wouldn't they? Yeah. Yeah, and and you upgrade? Did you give yourself like a truck endorsement or something or other as well? What'd you do? Oh, that's oh, actually. I, th- I, th- I think. I think it, you can't do this stuff now, but yeah, I love yeah, history yeah, because yeah. That, was, that was what it was like back then. But, but but here in New Zealand in those days, of course, when you got your license, your driver's license, it was kind of a little booklet. Mm. And um, when I went for my license in a Morris Minor, um, the guy signed me off, and 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 I thought at the time, you know, like it's just a pencil mark or a pen, you know, yeah. and. When they changed over to this new licensing system, um, there was nothing on the computer because they didn't have computers in those days. But when they did introduce the computer, I took the opportunity to endorse myself in trucks, heavy license, heavy, <laughs> heavy license for trucks and buses and caterpillar <laughs> tractors and all sorts of things. So yeah, it kind of kind of worked really well. I love the fact that you brought up the motorcycle club a moment ago and and reading old magazines and things like that. That had a very lasting impact on you, particularly around the Isle of Man TT and listening to stories about the TT and, you know, even now the the tourist trophy, which has been going for over a hundred years there, it's it's this odd mix of immense danger and yet it's it's intoxicating. I mean people like Mark Webber go and enjoy watching it. I mean it's it's 
an incredible thing, isn't it? Yeah, he goes and watches it. I didn't see him on a motorbike running around it. But but actually, to be fair, I mean, back in those days, it was around the World Championship, don't Mm. forget. Mm. So people had to go to the TT. Mm. It wasn't until 76 that they dropped that requirement out. Mm. Um, But in in the early, early 70s, I I was just mesmerised by, you know, Phil Reid and and, and Mike Halewood and all these guys going around there at these hugely ridiculous speeds. So it was kind of a, for me, it was, it was something that, that, that sort of grabbed me and I said, well, I, I, I've got to do that at some stage. Mm. Also, which made it kind of poignant to me was that we'd taken quite a few um, uh, New Zealanders over there and some of them hadn't come back wow. and some of those were actually members of the Auckland Motorcycle Club. Mm. So it was kind of a, a you know, like a, an interesting concept to be wanting to go but knowing that, ooh, hang on a second, you know, like this guy got killed and that guy got killed and, you know, so it was a bit of a... Uh, an emotional sort of, sort of decision, but at the time it was it, it's it's empowering. You know, if you ever get the opportunity to race the TT, mm. you can understand what it's like. Mm. But the, the the thought of going there is compelling. Once you're there, you wish to God you hadn't arrived. Mm. <laughs> oh, it's frightening. It really is. It is. It's absolutely frightening. Um, but the, but the whole thing about the, about going to the TT is you have a you have a, you have a image in your mind, mm. but when you turn up there and have to get up at six o'clock in the morning and you're standing on the grid that's freezing cold, and a guy walks along with a, a board saying rain on the mountain or mist on the mountain, um, you don't appreciate what it's like until you're actually on the bike and you're going there. And suddenly you're in, in you know in, engulfed in and just just mist and you don't know where the hell you are, mm. and that's the scary part. And the lap is. Correct me here. It's like thirty-seven miles or something ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, sixty odd kilometres for one lap. Mm. So you know, we in, in our days we we went round in, in six uh, six laps. So I think I was about the first person to do it under two hours. So you can get an idea of the length of the race. Mm. So um, yeah, and, and, and yeah, well, we we can talk about the TT a little later on. But that was that's what drew me into that whole competi- competition mode. Your first. And you'll need to join the dots here for me. Was your first club event at the Pukekohe Circuit, which is legendary place south of Auckland? And I think you might have finished fourth for the weekend, but it wasn't completely without incident, was it? No, there's there's been a, there's been a couple, but the best one was one of my early races. I went down to a place called Pororua, which is in Wellington, mm. and they had a, a racetrack around the shopping centre, and <laughs> and I was I was you know I, I was actually riding the bike really really well, but I, I ran wide on a corner. And ran up the curb, and were part of the driveway, I suppose, on the curb. And what the Wellington Motorcycle Club had done to prevent the crowd from coming on, they'd tied forty-four gallon drums together with ropes. Well, that's what they didn't back in those days. So I disappeared onto the curb and through this rope, and you know, got tangled up with the forty-four gallon drum. So I finished second. Um, in the race and the 44 gallon drum was credited as coming third <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of a it was a whoa <laughs> yeah it could be dangerous these street street circuits I'm super pleased to hear that you've you know in your, your entire career because it's a brutal game that you've not really got a massive um, serious injury toll to speak of but naturally mate you you witness because it was a dangerous period that you came through you witnessed others that are no longer with us how did you compartmentalise that? How did you go, okay, I still love this, I still want to pursue this, and having seen some pretty heavy crashes, park it in the back of your mind and, and keep going? I think the, it's an interesting question because, you, are, you know, I, I get asked this question quite a lot, you know, how do you deal with the, the, the deaths, the accidents and all that sort of stuff? But 
If you were to be in a sport for a very, very long time in one area, you end up getting to know everybody really closely. Mm. Now, that didn't happen to me. I rode in Australia, I rode in Japan, England, and in Europe and America and all, all these different places. So I was there, I was never there long enough to, to bond enough with the riders that if something happened, you, you would have a profound effect on you if, if you, if you can get what I'm saying. Mm. Is that a conscious choice as well? Like maybe don't get too close to people? Yeah. Well, that was, that, no, no, that, that, that came after when you think about it and then gives you an excuse. But it's, it's not quite like that because the, the, the events that, I would go to, uh, you know, for example, in Japan, the first, uh, the first, one of the first races I went there, there was one of the test riders got killed, mm-hmm. and he was very, very close to Morawaki, mm-hmm. so I went to the funeral with him, and he had a, I think it was a Buddhist type um, ceremony, and that was kind of a, whoa, hang on a second, you know, this is, this is pretty, pretty yeah. tough, mm-hmm. t- yeah, tough yeah. stuff, mm-hmm. um, and from there on in. It was it was good for me not to get too close, but it was something that I didn't particularly, you know, I didn't avoid people. It just happened to be that, you know, I'd turn up at one race, then I'd go to Australia to another one, then, you know, Japan for another one, then back to America or something like that. So I didn't have that, that midweek bond that you get with somebody like Wayne Gardner who lived in the UK, breathed motorbikes day in, day out, but only in one market, so to speak. Mm. I, that wasn't me. I wasn't like that. I was lucky enough to, to spread it. You figured out pretty early on the importance of being a in interview situations and things like that, being a bit of a character. You are a character naturally. I know what you're, you're like. And there'll be lots of these little stories that will pop up in our conversation here. But you did, and maybe your girlfriend at the time, streak at a party one night, didn't you? Yeah, I didn't. I, di- I didn't plan on being caught. <laughs> um, yeah, no, you, you, you do all those sort of things, you know, you... Um, you're talking about what the mid seventies when, like we live in a completely different lifestyle now, yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 PC has just gone mad. But in those days, you know, streaking happened to be the thing that you do, you know. And, <laughs> but like I say, I, I didn't figure on me actually getting caught, and there's nothing worse than being dragged through and put on show. <laughs> it was a cold night too, I might add. <laughs> Among the many New Zealand circuits that you competed at over time, you raced at, at Manfield near Palmerston, there on the North Island, the Amco. Open Grand Prix in the, the early 70s, 73, I want to say. Weather was a bit sketchy. Some great names in the field, uh, Stuart Vaughan, um, Ginger Malloy, uh, who'd been runner-up in the 1969 um, 500cc World Championship. That win for you, I think it earned you the grand total of $178 prize money, but that was probably quite a big deal back then, wasn't it? Was, it? it was huge. It was like winning <laughs> winning lottery. <laughs> and, and I always remember saying to myself, this bottle of wine... I'm going to keep this on my mantelpiece, you know. And it didn't I, last long, did it? It lasted about five minutes, honestly. But I, but but I I did want to. The basic tools you'll need to work on your engine: wrenches, ratchets, socket set, screwdrivers, pliers, and if that doesn't work, use a hammer. The focal part of our discussion at the moment is naturally where it all really began for you in New Zealand. You would go on to Australia and then around the world, as you, you said before. The Castrol Six Hour came to New Zealand and you kind of survived the 1974 race. But there is a good yarn about you kind of no brakes, pressing on, almost stuntman stuff coming into the pit lane, and somehow you pulled 
a third place out of it all, didn't you? Yeah, that was an interesting one because um, the the first Castrol six hour race uh, was won by um, Ginger Malloy, mm-hmm. right? He, he was on a Z Z nine hundred or Z one in those early days. We'd elected to use a a seven fifty Kawasaki triple, the two stroke, and. You know, in hindsight, we would have been better off on the Z1, but at the time, we thought the um, H2 may have actually been, you know, had, had been good, better. Mm. And in those days, we always had trouble with retaining brake linings in the rear, mm-hmm. and we used to go to a, a kind of a, it's a bit like a Bathurst brake, you know, really hard, and we'd enabled us somewhere along the line to, to source some of these brake pads and uh, or break shoes, I should say, and they were put aside for us because that was going to be our magic bullet that's going to, you know, mm-hmm. take us through. So when we got to uh, about a week out from the, 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 the race, we went down to the local brake shop who had been storing these and we said, okay, well, can we have our blue linings or green linings in those days or whatever it is? And they went, oh, uh, 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 and there was a bit of a stumble there for a while. <laughs> and, we, and we eventually found out that they'd given them to Honda, so we had nothing. So we had to run with standard brakes. And uh, Eric, I, I was riding with Eric Bone at the time, and um, he went out in the first session. And when he came in, we adjusted the rear brake like you'd normally do it. And then I went out, and about five laps later, there was no brake at all. So I continued until the first, um, my first stop. And I gave it to Eric, and I said, look, there's no rear brake. And he, he basically sort of said, well, Count me I, out. I don't want to do it. So the, the bugger, he said, no, you, you, you can ride it. You know, if you want to ride it, you do it. I'm not riding it without a rear brake. So I did the rest of the race. And this theme follows through the, all of my life in racing when you go with a team manager, uh, with a team rider or co-rider, is that come the end of the race, they're there for half the prize money, although you've, <laughs> you've actually done 90% of the riding. <laughs> so I had to split the prize money, which I, I did not begrudgingly, but I did. And uh, that, that, that's happened on a couple of other occasions as well. As a young man, you decide to have a crack at going to Australia. How was Australia viewed in those early 70s? Was it a, in, you know, a big step in your, in your career? And did you go there on a wing and a prayer with hardly any bucks in your pocket? And what'd you do for cars? And how'd you get around and things like that? That's, that's a good one. You know, back in the old days, when you flew DC-10s, I think they were in those days, something chronic, um, it, w- it was basically one of my first ever trips away. And to arrive in, in Sydney... And we'd pre-arranged it with um, with Kawasaki, New South Wales, mm-hmm. Miles Stevano yep. in those days, uh, to meet with him. And the expectation was that because I was racing for Kawasaki New Zealand, that they would then perhaps give me or introduce me to a team that's running Kawasaki's to run the six hour. So we, we turned up there and we went and saw Miles and... He sort of snubbed us a bit, and uh, basically he, he told us, "Look, if you know, Kiwis, nah, mate, nah, no, nah, no, nah, too many of you buggers over here anyway. And go and see Peter Stevens. He's got a Triumph. I think you might be able to have a ride on." And I thought at the time, "Oh, you bugger!" And I didn't want to do that, yeah. you know. So we were we sort of left, you know, tail between our legs with about two or three weeks to go before the the race. And then um, Bernie Summers, who was a uh, journalist with Revs Magazine. He was um, teed up to run with Chris Wise in those days and they had an old Z1 that they'd borrowed off somebody and, and I remember at the time they couldn't find any of the um, the shims big enough to take up the clearances and it was a rattly old thing and um, 
anyway, I I took over Bernie's ride after he had a crash, one of his numerous crashes that he's infamous for. Yeah. I think he broke his legs or something like that. I can't remember exactly. So we went out to um, Amory Park and I rode with Chris and, and the bike stayed together for the whole six hour and went really, really well. I think we finished fifth or sixth or something like that. And that was my first time that I'd actually raced it uh, in Australia. But huge, huge step. You know, when you've got eight people and a brown dog at Pukekohe and then you go to Amaru for the six hour, which is probably the biggest race mm. in Australia uh, in, 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 was it 70, it must have been 76 or something mm. like that. Um, that was that was a huge step mm. and hot mm. and flies. <laughs> and the stupidest thing of having to pull motorbikes down in all that sand and dirt and have Chris Peckham stand over you and say, okay, well, we want one camshaft, we want one valve, we want one shock absorber, we want want this and that, and he'd go away and measure it and we'd have to put it all back together in the hope that it would, you know, run without an oil leak or anything like that in the race. So the basic concept behind it was great. You know, you know that if you've passed qualifying, there's not nobody's going to protest you. Mm. You know, you've, you've, you've done Last. it. Mm. And that's how it worked. I lived for a time, not all that far from where Amaru Park used to be. It's now all... Um, sort of uh, lifestyle housing and, and things like that. Oran Park is now gone as well. There were some great Australian racetracks. Did you enjoy racing there? Amaru was, when you got down to Stopgo Corner for a motorcycle rider, that must have been quite a daunting corner. Well, well it was, but, you know, because they're all right-hand corners, aren't they? Mm. And I, I had some terrific races there, particularly on the um, in, in the six hour when I rode the CBX thousand. Mm. Uh, everybody said you're stupid, but in actual fact, you know, the thing well, we put it on pole, yeah. and we ran it. It was leading, I think, and then we had a problem with the um, the thing stopping. <laughs> it broke down. <laughs> no, it, it seized. Actually, we we're trying to squeeze too much out of it, but. Um, uh, the, the Z Z one R that I rode with uh, Kiyohara, mm-hmm. um, he he sort of tipped it over as well. Um, I rode a Ducati nine hundred there, um, and of course the Z one. So there's been plenty of opportunities there, but um, yeah, I, lo- I loved that circuit. It was it was really easy to. Oh well, I must say loved it. Coming onto the straight there one time in the early days, we were testing our superbike. We'd gone from a nineteen inch wheel to an eighteen inch wheel. And put a slick tire on it, and suddenly I had grip, and I pitched it into that corner. Uh, I'm not sure what corner it is. It's the one that goes onto the main straight, mm-hmm. but it's got a lot of armco ahead of you yes, if you if you, if you yeah. cock it up. Yeah. And I cocked it up, and I hit this armco and destroyed this this wheel that, Mor- that uh, it was a Morris magnesium wheel that we were so proud to have mm-hmm. to put on this bike, and we did about two laps and broke it. it. Yeah, destroyed it, but uh, it was good fun. Motor racing is a game in many ways of self-belief, whether you're cars or, or bikes. What was the point where, maybe it was in New Zealand before you went to Australia, what was the point where you thought, I can absolutely make a career out of this and, and I want to ultimately take on the world? What point did that, that click with you that you could be that that winner at that elite level? I think the biggest thing was um, if I talk about the a point of change, I think mm-hmm. it, it is mm-hmm. from being a sort of a privateer that kind of didn't really know where he was where he was going, but had opportunities given to him. I think it was when I got hooked up with uh, Ross Hannon uh, in in Redfin mm-hmm. in Sydney, and he he provided us with the superbike. That there is a that's where it all all kind of started, and from there on in, um, I don't think I've ever worked at honest day in my life <laughs> so that's got to be the point at which the, the turn was made um, he provided us with a, a piece of equipment that in those early days 
uh, the, you could do you could do production racing, mm-hmm. or you could go pucker racing. Yeah, and explain that for people that aren't Kiwis when you say that. Well, you know, proper proper. Well, mm-hmm. pucker pucker racing mm-hmm. is the is the lay down clip ons, you know, tucked in underneath a fairing. You know, the Yamaha race bikes, and they're all purpose built race bikes. Mm-hmm. The production bikes are one you you know you ride straight out of the showroom sure. floor. Mm-hmm. Well, right in between that, um, the super bikes were kind of um, introduced and that was on the basis that in America they were running the production bikes that were hotted up. Mm-hmm. Um, so Australia adopted rules and superbike and uh, improved production and, and improved touring and various sets of rules. So we were able to take a, a standard Z1 which normally put out about 80-odd horsepower and then convert that to 120 horsepower and, you know, put slick tyres on it mm-hmm. and actually make the thing steer and handle reasonably good but still retain that extra external vision of a Mm. production-type bike. Mm. It was good for the manufacturers because the the, the punters could actually recognise that it's a Z1 versus a Yamaha or whatever. So that kind of worked really, really well. Um, But when I I got given that bike by Ross, I don't think I was actually ever beaten. There might have been the odd time Mm. when I maybe had a hangover or something, but... (laughs) But, but but I was sort of so dominant there. It, it just it just gave me that feeling that um, you know I've got three testicles and everybody has only got two. Mm. It's that kind of you know confidence that you build in your own ability, I guess, and and knowing that the bike that you've got is more than capable of winning. And you go out there and it's kind of it's kind of a nice feeling. I can tell you. Some of the when you're on a shoestring. That hunger teaches you a lot, I think, in in life. And there are some fun moments away from the track that you experienced along the way, from what I can tell. So, for example, you had a Valiant at one point that you would take, and you would take it on big missions too, from Sydney to Lakeside, which is like a thousand k drive. Back before there was big open lane highways and and things like that. And didn't you didn't you have some alternator trouble in Tweed Heads one time, and some poor bloke in a beautiful Italian suit stopped to stop to help you <laughs> yeah we we almost got to uh, almost got to surface paradise um, and the alternator was obviously not working as good and I stalled the bloody thing going through I think it was Tweed head or something and there's traffic behind there was traffic even in those days um, what was it was it a valiant I think it was a valiant I think it was a valiant yep yep so what I did is um, I, I got out and and there was a couple of guys came along and they said, oh, we'll give you a hand and give you a push. So I didn't tell them to do this, but they pushed the back end of the, the car and literally forgot that there was a trailer behind. So when I dropped the clutch and it fired up, I drove off and, you know, the trailer hooked this guy's, you know, Armani suit and kind of ripped all his trousers off and I was seen disappearing off to... Sit. You can't stop, you can't stop. Can't stop, can't stop, yep, 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 yep. So that, that but, but you know, when you when you look back, and, and I guess to some extent, you know, that I'm not the only person because it was always a good, uh, a good excitement as far as driving from perhaps Sydney through to um, Adelaide. Mm. And we used to do it on a Friday night. We'd meet at the uh, Bankstown uh, motorbike shop and then we'd all pile into a 350, uh, no, a 350 Monaro with a the small engine. Okay. Four-speeder. Yeah. And... Uh, it was a GS, I think they call it a Monaro GS. Yeah. And there'd be basically five of us in this thing. A driver, 
passenger and then three in the back and in the trailer there'd be a couple of bikes and you know in the boot there'd be all our bags and bits and pieces and we'd do a rotation so the first stop might be Bathurst for example so that you'd race into the gas station the driver would then go into the passenger seat the passenger would then go into the back left and the, we'd just rotate all the way through and that would happen all the way through to Adelaide and just not stop Non-stop, all the way through. And you'd be driving across the middle of the Hay Plain, you know, and the stories that come out of there, like Peter Campbell on a, on a, um, one of his journeys, he, he had a, uh, a Humber snipe with a Valiant V8 and he was going across the Hay Plain and he had tied his 40, his 20 litre drums of petrol in the back and one came loose and was still tied to the vehicle and it dropped off the end of the trailer. Oh and of course, all you've got is this thing caught fire and the immediate reaction would be to stop. But Pete's smart. He said, if I just keep going, there won't be any petrol left, so I can stop safely. <laughs> so so for about eight kilometres, <laughs> he's left this flaming fireball. You know, fireball all the way through in the middle of the night. Um, that was one he told me about, which was which was great, but there was another one where he, he got hit with a, a kangaroo and it came through the through the through the front windscreen and ended up in the back seat and he thought he had rolled the car and he was dead because there was blood everywhere and he didn't realise there was a, a, a roo in the back. Yeah. So those are the sort of things that kind of um, make it make it kind of um, exciting as far as looking back on, on all that stuff goes. You would race against some great people for Australian listeners. At, at one point, you went to see the now late Greg Hansford for, I think, a couple of tips or some insights when you were at Lakeside there. And the very first time Harry, as he was known, came into view was like a scene out of a movie. He was sort of... He more or less slid into view, didn't he? He did, he did. That was that was my first race at Lakeside and I'd come up on the superbike and nobody knew who the hell I was and, and I'd heard of Harry Hansford and the, the TKA team, you know, which yeah. was uh, I think in those days Murray Sale and, and uh, Greg and Rick Perry, I think, yeah. the three of them. Um, anyway, I, I, I arrived there and we were due to go out and I was hanging over the fence at Lakeside and over the top of this hill came Harry. I think he was running a... Uh, it might have been one of his 250s or, th- or 350s at the time. And I thought, oh, I've got to watch this. Well, he, he put the brakes on, locked the front wheel up, came off the bike. The bike and him slid straight ahead off the track <laughs> and he didn't even stop. He basically just came to, a, came, well, came to a stop, but he had stood up and was still running and then just carried on and walked around, got onto his KR 750 and then went back out. And I thought, Christ, this is, this is a bit exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so so it was, um, that was my first um, introduction to, to Harry, which was, um, yeah, it was a bit, a bit of a shock. The Marlborough series in New Zealand the following year, you had some fun with he, I think Randy Mamola was a part of this as well, and you were playing pool one night between races and things escalated. Didn't it? What ha- what happened to poor Randy? Well, <laughs> let, let me put it in perspective that we we are playing pool. This is this is after the race, yeah. or between the pra- you know the day of racing and the, the practice day, and we're at this motel and we're playing snooker, or actually it was pool, and. Harry had, you know, in those days you had to put coins on the table, which you probably still do. I don't know. I haven't played it for a long time. Um, but we would, we would, my, my coin had come up and I was playing Greg Hansford, who was, it was a shark in those days, as they call it. Yeah. Anyway, I was getting very, very close to winning and I only had the black to sink. 
And we were playing for sheep stations. I mean, you know, like in those days, if I got $10, I'd be doing really, really well. Okay. <laughs> and in fact, I think that particular race, I had to actually win two races to be able to pay for the hotel to be able to carry on. So, Holy it, hell, mate, it would get that tight. Yeah, it got, it got, it got that tight. It didn't get, wow. it, it was there. Mm. It was true. So, um, and, I, and I'm thinking, well, you know, a few a few dollars would be kind of cool. Handy. And little Randy, the little bugger, <laughs> he, he was a little hairy-ass, pink-headed guy that <laughs> ran through at about a 1,000 mile an hour, and he, and he swept the ball off the table. And, of course, then it's null and void. Yeah. So I was a bit pissed off, as you can imagine. Um, so we chased him, and we located him and corralled him towards the men's toilet, stuff, stuffed him in through the door, and then got his head, turned him upside down, put his head down the toilet and flushed it. <laughs> there was three of us at it, or two of us actually, and uh, he still remembers that to the day. So um, from there on in, he never challenged us with Paul. Oh, it was, it was a good, It was a good, a good, a good event, actually. Oh, bet. That's the end of the first part of my chat with larrikin biker Graham Crosby. Head over and check out part two where we cover his international success. The fun didn't stop just because he was racing for big teams or at major events. Rusty's Garage is recorded for Podcast One. Written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If there's someone you want me to talk to on Rusty's Garage, get in touch on the show page at podcast1australia.com.au. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive safely. Listener.